Hello there, this is Dr. Casey Bradley, and you're listening to the Real P3 Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the real pork producers around the world. I hope you enjoy. This week's episode is a special feature. It came from an idea out of our Global Swine Professional Facebook group. Somebody wanted to learn about ventilation. And I thought, what producer knows ventilation better than my friend Brian Strobel, who now works for Justall? He did own his own contract wing to finish barns that he managed ventilation on a regular basis. And he also got his master's degree in ventilation. So please join us as we talk about the topic of the week, or now the topic of the season, ventilation. Well, hello, Brian. How are you today? Well, I'm doing well, Casey. How are you? Doing great. It's just another cold day here in Arkansas. <laughs> I think it's a perfect time to discuss ventilation. Can you introduce yourself and your background to the audience, though? Sure. First of all, thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Brian Strobel. I work with Just All and uh, work in all f- three phases of production. My education and experience include, uh, I won't say the year, but I <laughs> attended and graduated from Ohio State University. Then a few years later, I went to Purdue, got my master's. And then after I met my wife, we both got our MBAs. So uh, my master's at Purdue was uh, in uh, air quality inside fairing rooms. And that gave me a lot of perspective from Dr. Al Heber on ventilation. And that was in 94 to 96. So that's really when I think I came into my own and uh, learned a lot more about the industry. And then experience includes, I've worked with extension right after we married in the late 90s. Um, I worked on the processing side, even though that's not where I wanted to be. I wanted to be in live production. And then in 2007, uh, Smithfield made me an offer. One I didn't want to turn down to be construction manager for the Western Operations. So that was really enjoyable. And uh, then I get the chance to work with all the pork powerhouse, 25 with Osborne. And then just a few years ago, I started with Just All. So I got to see some things worldwide. And then also eight or nine years ago, we bought our first contract site for Smithfield. And then a few years after that, we bought a Cargill site, now a JPS site. And uh, so 8,000 spaces, we sold those last year. But I still like working with uh, growers and uh, South Farms and integrators. So no matter what time of day it is, it's it's fun to do, and I, I enjoy doing it each day. Very interesting background. You've had many roles and many hats, and you've also had your own bacon on the line, per se, in the industry. So this is a special topic that we're talking about, ventilation. We've had several discussions now, I think, over the last few weeks in person and then virtually, of course. But let's talk about ventilation in the wintertime. And we'll talk about it from the Northern Hemisphere, and then we'll get into summertime ventilation here at the end for our Southern Hemisphere listeners. So talk about what some key important things this time of year to really make sure that you hone in on. Yeah, I think this is the toughest time of year to ventilate. We're ventilating for moisture. We deal with condensation this time of year, respiratory challenges. We know that this is when PERS is most prevalent and PED since 2014, and uh it's tough to receive wean pigs this time of year too. So we've really got to be on top of our game. I think the industry as a whole has done better in managing inlets, keeping air, you know, mixing on the ceiling, regardless if I'm farrowing or gestation or finishing and nursery. 
we mix the air before it drops on the pigs. That's a key point in my mind, watching where our leaks are. There's some folks smarter than me on heating and propane usage. Of course, we want to minimize that. And with my grower hat on, I was the guy paying for the propane. So, you know, we were figuring two gallons per pig space per year, you know, is what we'd contract. That was usually pretty accurate, but still we wanted to make sure our curtains were tight. You know, if we were powered to natural, making sure that we weren't getting leaks in the side curtains and exhausting out the fans. So, uh, of course, we don't want to exhaust out warm air needlessly. We know that warm air hoards more, more, more moisture than uh, cool air and heat always rises. So we've got to pay attention to that. Usually we're seven and a half to eight foot tall in our rooms with a flat ceiling. So still, you know, in the wintertime, we're bringing air from the attic. So it is pre-mixed, you know, through our inlets, whether to bifold or quad or, or slot inlet, regardless of our method of entry. Um, we're still trying to pre-mix it from the eaves up into the attic and then down and exhaust it through our either our pit fans through the floor or through our wall fans on minimum vent uh, through the wall. Yeah, one of the unique things I learned this week um, visiting with the Pig Easy folks is I got to learn about baffles on pit fans and kind of watching how you can redirect that air or close some of those inlets for the fans to have a different type of air. And it was really interesting by using some baffles or changing the the flow rate around those pit fans, how we could still pull the moisture and gases out, but it looks like they weren't pulling the heat out and saving on propane. So how do you manage this condensation balance between pit fans, um, your minimum ventilation fans, and, you know, of course the mixing of air, but without burning too much propane. Cause I mean, I guess that's the biggest thing that we want to have is fresh air, but we also want to keep the pigs warm. And, and how, how do you balance that in cold weather? I want to give a plug then for Jay Harmon, Dr. Jay Harmon at Iowa state. He's probably the foremost experts that I've got to work with, you know, on one of our sites, they had had the pit fans removed. And of course mm-hmm. we only need pit fans on a deep pit barn. I don't know of any new barns being built today with deep pits that do not have pit fans. Okay. But that, you know, when we bought our site there, pit fans were removed. We thought it was fairly tight, so we didn't have leakage. But still, the managing the pit fans is a source for leakage by far. I've seen lots of them. There's pictures. Mike Brum had shown lots of right. pictures in his day. So we just try to make sure that those are tight. We know that those didn't get washed well outside. So those louvers on those pit fan covers, you know, they have a lot of dust buildup on them or manure buildup. And they're not well cleaned in general. So that's an easy target for preventing maintenance to go around and check those. And then our wall fans aren't much better. I know it's, I've cleaned them myself and it's not easy to do it. You can use a broom or a stiff brush or try to use the power washer and not damage them. Make sure that the veins all stay in place, you know, so that the rod goes through them and they stay affixed. So I know it might sound easier said than done, and when we're actually doing it, making sure we don't lose a vein either. I've lost them in the pit before and <laughs> buying replacements, but it is something that needs to be on a checklist. Well, no, I agree. It was mandatory on my units, even with shallower pits, that the pit fans and the fans got washed every turn. Um, I was a stickler at that because when you're washing them, I know you have to be careful with the, the power washer, but at the same time, I was checking my louvers. Are they they functioning right are they going around right and so that was kind of in my mind a checklist that I had and I could tell you know sometimes I'd come back and not manage it and you want to talk about reducing your airflow don't clean your fans right especially your pit Mm -hmm. fans so 
I think that's kind of essential that we all forget we're very lean, uh, very cost conscious and maintenance is sometimes the last time we, we think of it. And I, I like to put out, uh, I have like preventative maintenance versus putting out fires and reactive. And so I think if you put that on your list that you may even save costs long, long-term by, you know, maintaining versus putting out fires. You're right. And that's something I think we all can do better is preventing maintenance because when things come up, that's what's first priority. So taking care of pigs each day, feed water and air, we know that. And then, I mean, taking out dead pigs, that's a priority. You know, cleaning fit fans means I got to get the pressure washer on the outside of the barn. So if I'm receiving pigs February, you know, early February here, outside when it's freezing out, it's not so easy. You know, I want to hurry up and get that done outside or take a broom or brush on them first, clean them. So I get most of the large stuff off and then try to hit them with the pressure washer so that I get a lot of the smaller stuff off those things. Also, I wanted to mention stir fans. That's, I think, an often overlooked one, especially, well, on, on tunnel barns, you know, we're taking the air straight through the barn. On cross mm-hmm. vent, you know, we're coming from the side walls. Sometimes I think on a receiving inlets, bring it through the airspace, we've got some dead spots in the corners. You know, we want to establish dunging patterns early, especially on wean to finish. You know, they're in such a large space, small animal. We're trying to provide a zone of heat, you know, for each pin and then establish our dunging patterns close to the sidewalls where it's cooler. That's usually where the waters are. And then the end game is maximize feed intake. You know, same as we do for lactation. Anything we can do with environment to get a sow to eat as much as she can for her litter because we want to maximize our, our litter weight. And then for wean to finish, especially to get them started on water quickly so that they'll eat so that we don't lose two or three days, you know, at the beginning, getting them started. Whether that means a gruel feed or providing a water pan with a even feed on the mat, you know, to get them started. Some guy, some folks still creep feed and late lactation to get them started, to get those gut biomes started so that they can take off quicker if they're not going to the nursery you know, going to such a large room, usually with concrete slats. So it's cold floor versus a plastic floor in the nursery. So I think a lot of that has been really worked on in the last five to 10 years um, since we've gone to such a higher percentage of wean to finish. And it's become a lot more commonplace, you know, in just a straight feeder barn where I'm receiving in a lot heavier pig. But I think that stir fan is, is often overlooked. I don't see a lot of them. I think there is probably a need for them to mix that air you know, horizontally within the room, you know, our, our warm air goes to the ceiling. We're not bringing it back down to the floor. Pit fans do help to pull some of that air down. And then that starts the debate of how effective they've been, you know, what radius they're pulling from, you know, late in the fall, how effective they are when we got our pits mostly full most of the time. And that's where taken out twice a year. Now, if you got an empty pit in the wintertime, that's tough receiving pigs because you got a big airspace and right. uh, a lot more heat that, Manure serves as somewhat of a buffer, you know, other times a year because you don't have such a large airspace below the slat. Very good point. And I kind of want to jump into, you know, in Arkansas, we didn't have the best barns. We weren't built for cold weather. We were built for hot weather. And it was really hard for us to maintain our wing to finish barns above 55 degrees with a week like this, believe it or not. And this is where zone heating came in to of importance. And let's talk about zone heating from farrowing to wing to finish. This time of year is absolutely essential, but we can do it wrong too. Yep. Those are good points. 
like I had mentioned, I had done my work at Purdue in the mid-90s. It was on air quality, but we did get into that zone heating discussion. And the discussion on heat mats versus lamps is a key part of that. Because a lamp, I got a round pattern. You know, so if I lower it, I get more intense heat, but I get less coverage. If I raise it, I get more coverage, less heat. So I kind of lose either way with that. On day one, big care. If I don't have a night crew, I think those are valid points. I need heat and light for them until my crew gets there at six or seven in the morning. But then that needs to be out of there and, you know, take it somewhere else. We don't need any more if they're using a mat or uh, I'm trying to provide a third of a square foot of coverage per piglet in farrowing. You know, the goal is you shoot for a half a square foot of heated area and wean to finish. So a third of a square foot for me means if I got 12 viable pig piglets, I need four square foot of coverage in my fairing creek, usually on one side. I know there's some producers that provide heat on both sides, but I think most that I've worked with and seen provide heat on one side of the creep area. Mm-hmm. You know, on a six foot wide crate, you know, it's easy. I got a two foot creep area on one side, two foot for the south, two foot the other side. Or if I'm five foot or five and a half, you know, it's increments of that. So if I'm providing a one, one foot area out from the creep divider of heated area, I still got a zone of separation to the south to decrease my pre-wind mortality. I don't think they have any business, you know, being close to the sow unless they're nursing. I don't want them sleeping there. I want them back towards the, you know, the creep divider to limit our proven mortality. And that's been well documented by others and uh, by university trials, but still trying to center that heat placement close to where the teats are. So ideally our end game is to get the smaller piglets to be able to get one of the front teats where they usually have more milk. Mm-hmm. I think the problem that I've seen in fairing most of the time and most everybody I think would agree is we run our war- our rooms too warm. Yeah, I'd had lots of questions on, Hey, why won't my sows eat more? And some of it, we got to come back to ourselves and say, Hey, it's partly our problem because we're running a room too warm. We re- got to realize this is the only stage of production where we've got two distinctly different age groups. <laughs> we got a mature sow or, you know, yeah, 600 pounds. Sow 600 and, pounds and, and a lot of body mass, she gets hot. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, trust me, after having kids, you're you're hot. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, she, she'd be fine at 65 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's a yeah. big challenge for a lot of folks to think, I'm not running my rooms that cool. And I'm not, um, I know there's several producers that are, but the, the point I wanted to make is she's fine at a cooler temperature. Yes, we want to start those piglets at 95 degrees in their microenvironment. And then one degree down per day, you know, ramp down until they leave. So at 21 days, usually down to 74 degrees. That's, you know, the goal set points we have. That environment plays a huge role. And we know it in summertime because we've seen, you know, she doesn't want to eat. So any tactics that we have, like me with Jeffstall, we've got several very good tactics for her to maximize intake during hot weather. But now during cold, you know, we're maybe airing on the side of, protecting the piglets. Mm-hmm. And I realize that. And then uh, at the expense of the sow and two other things I've noticed are, you know, usually we're not using horizontal hovers. Like I mentioned drafts. That's usually the, one of the first things I look for in a fairing room is, or to feel, you know, where's the drafts. If it's coming from the hallway, my second crate's usually going to be chilled. Brian, why do you think North America compared to other parts of the world have, has gone away from louvers or hovers or, you know, those boxes or covers for p- baby pigs. Why do you think we've gone away from that besides that they're a pain in the butt and they get dirty? Yep. And they're, and I got to wash them. Yeah. Yep. 
I'm not sure I have a good answer for that. I know we're not as cold as some of the Europeans and some of the Canadians where we get uh, a lot of comparison to. Still, we want to maintain an airspeed coming from our inlet, whether it be from the ceiling or the hallway, so that we're not dropping air on those pigs. And somebody told me the other day that they average, you know, three days loss on shield piglets, you know, from a hallway. And mm-hmm. I suppose that's right. But, you know, anything that we can do to minimize that so we increase our wean weight for the average of the room. But I, I just haven't seen a lot of hovers. Ten years ago, I think I, I've seen more. You know, I've been to Eurotier several times, worked with customers in you know, Switzerland, Germany, Denmark. They definitely use hovers more than we do. I just think with our, you know, employee labor, a lot of times it's not family labor that we got. It's something else to wash in that room. We've got to turn that room around quickly for the next group. There's probably other reasons beyond that, but what I do know is that creep divider is 20 inches tall. That's my vertical divider, you know, to limit drafts. Mm-hmm. But if we're dropping air over the top, that's the short circuit in our system that I think we need to pay better attention to. Because uh, And I don't care if it's winter or summer. If you're dropping cold air through a cool cell on a baby pig in the summer, it's no good either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's they're they're not made for that because they've got a high body mass to weight ratio, and uh, they're not set up to temperature regulate like the sow is. We're trying to get heat away from the sow. Purdue's done some excellent work on that for sow cooling. Um, you know, getting heat dissipating it from the sow, and uh, summertime that we all know the stress that she goes through. And like you were saying, she just gave birth. We want to minimize that stress. We want to maximize her intake to maintain her body condition but also to maximize that litter weight. I know when I received weaned pigs in, in January, February, and they're less than 12 pound average, two things there. One, I want a 15 pound average weaned pig, if I could, you know, receiving Mm -hmm. it into a wean to finish barn. And two, what's the variance? You know, am I receiving an 11 pound, a nine pound pig? That's challenged from the start, you know, poor performer. It's really hard to make him a good performer because he's, he's already behind. He's got to play catch up and his gut biome is probably not established well yet. And it's just another disadvantage that we got or else separate him to another pin, you know, the slow performer pin to get him up to speed. Where and should the lightweight pigs go in your barn? If you're pulling those out and making lightweight pins, should they go in a ventilated barn in the middle at one of the ends? You know, I always found my best growing pigs is right by the fans. Yep. Yeah. On a tunnel barn, you know, it's, it should always be warmer at the tunnel fan because you're pulling that warm air down the barn. Usually I've seen them in the middle. I know it varies by integrator, you know, or by your territory manager where he or she wants you to have that sick pin or the fall behind pin established. I, I know they could be at the, the inlet end of the barn, but you know, it's going to be cooler. So I usually wouldn't want them there. Then you can talk, well, I got, I can have more attention if they're near the door because they're, you know, I'm likely to check them more often. I guess I've seen them more, more often than not, regardless of integrator, towards the, at the middle of the barn. Mm-hmm. Um, they're like likely to be challenged, you know, too hot or too cold. They're not at one end of the barn where they're too far to get to, but that, I know it varies by integrator and their SOPs, you know, where they want that sick pin to be. I think the key point is leaving some extra space to pull them out to get them there. Mm-hmm. You know, whether I'm seven and a half to eight square foot range, you know, for my per head in finishing, still I want to get them be able to get them to a pin, pull them. And that's the same thing we see in gestation. If she's lame, I got to get her early. You know, she's going off feed. I had that question come up today about, you know, finished pigs, getting them 
to a pen early, knowing if they're going off feed or water. And I think the chicken guys do a lot better job of knowing when birds are going off water than we still do, although we're making strides with our water meters. But if they're going off water, they're going to go off feed. The key is to catch them early. If I'm going to pull them to a pen, get them by themselves. We're doing better, I think, as an industry. We're gestating sows, finished pigs, you know, with contract growers, get them to that emptier pen so they're not going to get beat up and more feeder space so that we can help them get caught up and more personal attention. We would like to take this break to thank our sponsors, the Sunswine Group, Nutrisign, Swine Nutrition Management, and Pig Progress. Without their support, this adventure would not be possible. So now back to our episode. So let's switch gears. Let's imagine we're down with my friends in South Africa right now on a, a safari or something in a warm tropical weather. <laughs> Sometimes we have that transition time and that hard time of switching seasonality. Like some people say we can have three different uh, seasons in, in one day or one week. How do you adjust as you're coming out of winter and into summer and managing ventilation and are there better systems or controllers that can help you balance that? Or, I mean, what are the best ways to transition from cold stress into mild to heat stress with ventilation systems? Yeah, there's no doubt that the controllers have made great advances in the last 10 years from what we had before. I think that has been a key help, plus our animal husbandry of, you know, training and uh, working with territory managers and some uh, manufacturers as we walk through barns. So I think it's a mix of both equipment and knowledge. I don't think there's a silver bullet. I don't think yet you can put a controller in and a ventilation package and walk away. It's easier for somebody that's new. I'll grant that for a new manager. And we always want to think about that. If we have to change managers in a sow farm or in a finisher, you know, how quick are they going to learn the system? Obviously for the benefit of the managing the animal, being able to check you know, ventilation on their phone is definitely an advancement to check it remotely, check it in the evenings after they left the farm. But what you said earlier, it goes back to manage my inlets. They got to work as a, as a unit, manage my exhaust fans, whether they're variable speed or fixed speed. I think there's, I know I went to a JBS open house yesterday. They got some really neat features now where you can see color coded um, louvers, you know, for your fixed speed versus your variable speed fans. Mm-hmm. And uh, be able to look at one end of the barn and see if your your louvers are open at the other end, and and if they're dirty, like we said, they're not going to be open all the way. So <laughs> no, yeah. might be losing 40 percent of your capacity just because you can't get the louvers open. And in the winter time, the opposite of that, if you, if you're missing a louver, that's cold air rushing in. Put mm-hmm. your back, your hand up against that, and you can really feel that cold air. It's a leakage area, or even have as cold as it's going to be here below zero, frozen water lines at the worst don't want that or chilled pigs or reverse dunging patterns. I think it's definitely easier today than it has been, but also we don't have our choice of labor today either. In the U.S., we don't have an abundance of labor You know, at the farm. We've got to do more with less people. Like on our south farms, we're averaging one person for 300 or thereabouts. And you know, the rule has been on a finisher, one person's full-time equivalent or FTE should manage up to 8,000 spaces. So that's been the rules of thumb you know, for, for management. And I think using the data, I think that's what's different today, you know, than in the mid 90s, the last 25 years, my philosophy has been, okay, so we've got more access to data today. What are we going to do with it? And we want to be better today than we are tomorrow. 
So we're able to collect data. We want to be able to use that to get better later. So that spring and the fall time, like you were saying, when it's transitioning, it might be cold in the morning, but by afternoon, it's going to be hot or warm. And uh, you're going to have those fluctuations to go through and same in the fall, you know, getting getting into continuous cold. So it, it, it's still going to be a combination of uh, equipment advances and personal knowledge of knowing because mm. even a good manager, if he's got poor ventilation or, you know, some of these quad inlets we still have and that I've you know, had in some of our barns, that's tough because you can't keep them tight enough. There, it's a it's a source for leakage. You always have to have backup uh, generator, you know, for dropping curtains or for emergency ventilation. That's a lot of leakage there. It's hard to plan for. We we can run our calculations, but we've got to make allowances for how much leakage we have. So let's talk cooling. I think so. And your Purdue University, your alumni of Purdue, you know, they're sow cooling pads and stuff. What's the best way to cool sows and then wean to finish? How to manage that? Yeah. And I know the veterinarians listening to this call, they're going to be thinking relative humidity. I know that we can control for relative humidity, have a sensor in the room and static pressure. So I don't want my doors to slam because it's too tight. You know, <laughs> we've had yeah. those discussions before where you can get the room too tight. Same as in a house. You know, uh, my dad had talked about that. So there's certain ways, you know, if a building's too tight or too loose, usually we're too loose. Usually we're mm -hmm. not too tight, but with a south cooling pad, I'm, I'm hoping that they make good progress with that at Purdue and getting it available. I think there's some merit to it, you know, and there's a cost point, you know, we're already providing a microenvironment for each litter in that fairing room. Then if we can have a sow cooling for her, you know, that makes sense as long as it does, you know, financially and, and a return on investment. But my point being earlier that just so we pay attention, how else can I cool her? If I'm using a cool cell, bring it through the hallway, you know, into the room, that's adding moisture and the veterinarians will say, well, you know, it's a respiratory challenge a lot of times. And this is our season for PERS and PED. We just want to pay attention to, you know, air quality. For my thesis, for example, we were looking at fan settings, ventilation, uh, we're also doing additives. How could I get dust out of the air? Dust and bacteria are highly correlated. A lot of times the dust rides on the bacteria. So if I get the dust out, I get the bacteria and virus out. So that's an easy one if I can get the dust out. We don't have a commercially available, widely adopted dust reduction system in the U.S. today. We've got several producers I could name that do a very good job and are advanced in trying to limit dust. But the sources of dust are feed, animal dander, and environmental dust. So if we're limiting dust coming in the eaves, for example, that helps. But we're always going to have feed dust, no matter if we're pellets or mash. And we're going to have a certain amount of animal dander, you know, no matter if we're washing sows before, you know, their, their skin dries out and you're going to have dead skin cells. And uh, we're not washing them throughout the turn, the 21 to 24 days that she's in fairing. So she's going to have, you know, animal dander in the room. So what we're trying to do, we'd like to do is get that out of the air to decrease the challenge. So I got a really tough question for you on the whole ventilation. And as we talk about the Paris climate and global warming and uh, going green in different initiatives, not here just in the U.S., but around the world. Is it going to be possible that pig production site can produce all of its energy, either from gases from the pit to solar to offset our heating costs and our electric? Do you think that is a possibility? 
and what are we lacking to get there? Well, this is going to be my opinion, so take this for what it's worth. And I should say, you know, in 2007, I got my agricultural PE license. So I've been licensed since then. And then last year, I joined ASES, American Solar Energy Society. And I'm familiar with solar energy since 1978 when my mom and dad put it in. So with those caveats, here's my opinion. I'd rather not be legislated to do it. I'd rather we do it for the right reasons, you know, for energy usage or to limit carbon footprint is an is a noble endeavor or effort. I think we have a lot better tools today for solar and for wind. Um, those are the two most readily available we have. And then looking at the return on investment for those two. I know we looked at it for our barns and I had mentioned that I didn't think we had enough equity to, to do that. If our barns were paid off, uh, we could. So I think that might be a, a case-by-case basis or decision. Mm-hmm. I know Southeast Iowa is the best areas that I've seen for renewable energy because I see lots of ground mount solar and roof mounted solar, you know, photovoltaic. I grew up with solar hot water heating for, you know, in place of electric or natural gas or propane for a water heater. We heat it with solar. Uh, you know, nowadays it's for, for electricity. And then the debate goes, do I need a battery? Can I store that electricity or can I sell it back at retail price? Or is it going to be at wholesale price back to utility company? And I think that varies by utility company. And uh, you might get some mail on that. <laughs> but um, th- I think those are some of the questions. I know we looked at it for our house too, putting it on the house. I think if it makes sense, I know people continue to adopt it. I think the life of solar panels, for example, they're claiming 25 years. So I know that they've gotten better quality. Then we get the question if I'm going on the roof, so it doesn't interfere with having it on the ground, are my trusses strong enough to support that? Do I have a factor of safety enough with a snow load and adding a dead load of solar panels on my roof? Whereas a ground mount, the question is, can I keep deer out or put a fence up? And then you get, I know there's communities that have objected to solar because of a fence, because the deer can't get through. And then other people object to seeing windmills turn so, or, or migratory patterns. I think bottom line is my, my opinions have been, I think we'll continue to see more alternative energies adopted. And with methane, I know, you know, in that Northern Missouri area, they've adopted some. I know North Carolina has as well. I, I know the technology can continue to get better. And if we keep working with them, no doubt they will be. Same for transportation, you know, whether it's on a pipeline or trucking. And uh, so I think each of those has some merit. You have to have enough concentration to make it worthwhile. Like with us, most of our barns run east-west in uh, swine industry. I know there's some north-south barns, but by and large, we're east-west. So we've got a south-facing roof. So for solar, that's great. I've got a built-in platform. My first choice is, can I put it on the south-facing south, side, south facing roofs of my barns? And most of us have plenty of you know ground space that we could consider you know, a ground mountain as well. Maybe not so much for wind because you've got to match you know, be in the area where you're going to catch the most wind. So I, I think it'll continue to be adopted. I just hope we're doing it. We do it for the right reasons. But the majority of our heat comes from natural gas or propane today. Mm-hmm. Will yeah. that have to change? Or do you think we can evolve our systems? Because I know it's been a challenge and it's always, as you said, for the right reasons. And it hardly ever pencils out sometimes for a lot of people to, to yeah. turn gas off of the the manure pits, uh, lagoons and things, you know, can we, do you think it's possible to become self-sufficient on gas as well from the manure? Well, the problem with that though is we're opposite times of the year. 
when we're producing most solar, when we have the most light available in wintertime, we don't have a consistent source of sunlight. Mm-hmm. Um, or we might have snow on those reflectors. And our, so Yeah, and our manure is in the ground in the winter. So mm-hmm. Yep, and we're trying to ventilate to keep you know, noxious gases. We're controlling for hydrogen sulfide, ammonia, and carbon dioxide. And we can debate what being a noxious gas or not because we're all producing carbon dioxide. And it has to be electricity, right? For me, paying the bills for propane or natural gas, of course, we want to limit that. But that zone heating that you mentioned, that was, I think that's a key. We know it is in farrowing. And when to finish, we've seen it as well with the adoption of brooders. We're just heating zones. That creates dunging patterns from day one where they'll, you know, where they'll dung. So they won't reverse dung near the center aisle. That's usually what we see along the gate. Um, that's not what we want. We want them dunging away from that, away from the feeders. So it's nice and dry there. And we're seeing some of that same in, in gestation as well, establishing dunging patterns. Where the waters are placed is a key part of that. Of course, we want fresh water. We don't want them to dung in a cup. We want a, the cups to be clean. So it's clean water. We're using cups. But I think that's a key piece of how the environment can help her total feed consumption. So she's got to drink a large amount to be able to eat. And then placement of those is something that we can control, you know, to uh, keep the floors dry. We've talked a lot about soil mortality in the past, dry floors, limiting bacteria on the floor. And I think we've started to pay quite a bit of attention to that so that we can help our longevity. Because most of us would agree that we should do better on our sound mortality. We're pretty low on our parity structure. And uh, we, we'd like to see, as long as we don't, wouldn't lose production or to last longer in the herd. So uh, we, we try to do everything we can to help that feet and leg structure and so that we don't damage toes. And then for a terminal animal like we have in wean to finish, you know, he's only going to be there five months or so. So it's not seen as so critical there. We still want dry floors, of course. We want to be comfortable. We don't want them. To, we know in summertime, of course, they could lay in a wetter area to be more comfortable. They would, but certainly not in the wintertime like now. So I think you bring up a great point about ventilation being a critical component of our conversation of lowering our carbon footprint and becoming carbon neutral, not just on renewable energy sources, but on also keeping our floors dry and then ammonia around maximizing production and that kind of stuff. So with that, if there's not any other points, I think it's a good time to wrap it up to say that we need to bring ventilation into every conversation on performance. Yep, you're right. And I would add too that I think each of us, you know, has our own specialty. I have nutritional discussions every day. And I think the end game is, you know, maximizing, you know, body condition and average daily gain. And uh, thank you for allowing me to get those points across for paying attention to our environment because that impacts our end goal of, you know, animal husbandry, taking care of the sow and growing pig and the piglet to uh, help them to have as much intake as we can to uh, help them with our, uh, our growth targets. Well, thanks, Brian. And if, if you get a chance, I guess I'll see you maybe in a few weeks in Illinois. If that works out. That'd be great. All right. Take care. Thanks, Casey. Bye. We'd like to thank our sponsors, the SunSwine Group, NutriSign, Swine Nutrition Management, and Pig Progress.